Hello and welcome. These are some sermons given by Monsignor Rosito from the years 1995 to the year 2016. Enjoy. Today is the third Sunday in Lent and the epistle is taken from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Brethren, be imitators of God as very dear children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and delivered himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God to ascend in fragrant odor. But immorality and every uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as become saints, or obscenity, or foolish talk, or scurrility, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For know this and understand that no fornicator or unclean person or covetous one, for that is idolatry, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one lead you astray with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. Do not then become partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk then as children of light, for the fruit of the light is in all goodness and justice and truth. And the Holy Gospel is taken from the Gospel according to St. Luke. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. <clears throat> At that time Jesus was casting out a devil, and the same was dumb. And when he had cast out the devil, the dumb man spoke, and the crowds marveled. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of devils, he casts out devils. And others, to test him, demanded from him a sign from heaven. But he, seeing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be brought to desolation, and house will fall upon house. If then Satan also is divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? because you say that I cast out devils by Beelzebub. Now if I cast out devils by Beelzebub, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When the strong man, fully armed, guards his courtyard, his property is undisturbed. But if a stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, he will take away all his weapons that he relied upon and will divide his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he roams through waterless places in search of rest, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house which I left. And when he has come, he finds the place swept and adorned. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more evil than himself, and they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Now it came to pass, as he was saying these things, that a certain woman lifted up her voice from the crowd and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore thee, and the breasts that nursed thee. But he said, Rather, Blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. So far are the words of this day's Holy Gospel.
For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk then as children of light, for the fruit of the light is in all goodness and justice and truth. These are words taken from the epistle of today's Holy Mass in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. My dear friends in Christ, during this season of Lent we are talking about sin and we're trying to bring you a fuller understanding of the nature of evil and sin. Otherwise, the subject becomes very mechanical and remote, and we do not appreciate the full depth or the extent of evil and sin, especially mortal sin. We've talked about sanctifying grace, the elevation to the divine supernatural life, which escapes us because we can't put our hands on it, we can't see it, we can't even feel it, but it is reality, and we try to work by remote control, so to speak, or reading the instruments on the panel and directing ourselves according to faith, to doing the things of charity according to the uh, enlightenment or the instructions of God. And we find that without this clear point of view as to the goal and how to achieve it, we're at sea, we're, uh, we're uh, at a loss, and we think we're doing right when we're not doing it uh, right at all. And so we try to talk about uh, sin as disorder in general. Talk about original sin as the separation from God, but we don't really grasp the nature of original sin as separation from God. Uh, we know that we are separated from God, but we live in our own little world, and we live with each other, and we do the things that are human on this earth for good or for evil, and it's hard to realize that none of it really is good in the sense of the divine, the supernatural. And Christ came into this world to lift us up by sharing in his life, through baptism, the status of grace, the sanctification of God himself, which is an enlightening of our mind, a strengthening of our will, and the operation through the gifts of the Holy Ghost, the virtues of the Holy Ghost, which we'll be talking about later on in our series here, but to know that really we don't even fully grasp what original sin is. We try to put it in words, but the notion is difficult to understand. And so we give you comparisons, and we say, as above, so below. You've heard that statement before, and we get a sort of an idea of what that is. Whatever happens in the higher levels happens in the lower levels. Or to turn it around, whatever happens in the lower levels happens in the higher levels. A little bit vague, but still conveying an idea of similarity. So we can make comparisons by metaphors, by examples, by parables. And what happens on this level can be transferred to understanding another level. We see with our eyes, for example, the light that um, is physical. And then we transfer that notion to a different kind of light, which we call goodness. But you can't see it like with the eyes, but it's a reality that the mind grasps. You say, oh, I see. Well, not with your eyes, but you see with your mind. And you can grasp what is bad, and we can understand what is good. We know the difference, but it's not something you can grab hold of or measure out in any way. It's a moral reality 
that animals cannot understand because they only have eyes to see the physical things but not a mind to grasp the spiritual things. Then we have a third level which is the supernatural and this is even more difficult because it's beyond the spiritual. We think the spiritual and the supernatural are the same and they're not. They're a beyond level that is most difficult. We can only grasp this by comparisons. And that's why our Lord used parables and uh, examples that would lift us up to the second and third level of these realities that have a light of their very own, the supernatural light, not just the moral light, but the spiritual, supernatural, sanctified, divine light of God has to penetrate into this darkness and lift us up by its light, by its standards, by its realities that we could never discover had God not told us about it. So this is how far we are from God. Now we come to actual sin, which is what we ourselves commit. We want to realize how far we go away from God, even more so than we are in the state of original sin. Even though sanctified by grace, still we have the effects of original sin dogging us. Now, I've given you an example of what we call the uh, image of the Taj Mahal. Somebody was kind enough to give me a nice picture of this reflection of the Taj Mahal in the water. And I've seen a picture of the uh, Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., also reflected similarly in the body of water before it. And it's an exact replica. Only it's an upside down picture that we get. As above, so below. But notice it's not parallel, it's in reverse. As above, so below, but in reverse. And there is a kingdom of Satan that's united, organized, but backwards. And so the virtues and the vices are the same, but backwards. As above, so below, but not in the same manner. As, for example, the Taj Mahal is a real building, the reflection is only an image. Three dimension is reduced to two dimensions. And so it loses one dimension, which is very, very important. It's very solid, but not the, the image. The image is not solid at all, but it looks the same, but upside down and reversed. So with this image, by the way, uh, it was upside down. And we don't realize that this is the way life is. We are upside down. And God is trying to straighten us out. We were once darkness, but now we are light. And according to the realities and the fullness of this vision of God, do we see how far we were from God and how upside down and backwards we are, even in life to begin with. And when we start dismantling this structure, how much more evil or disorganized it becomes. And that's why he was not for me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. So if you don't construct, then you're going to destruct. If you don't progress, you're going to regress. And so we have these images that, while we can slowly come to an appreciation and re-evaluation of them, we found out that we were in the reverse world to begin with. And God calls us out of that reverse world into virtue, into light, into truth and justice and goodness. And say, what a journey we have to make. It's not walking from here to there, but within us to change and develop and to readjust and to reform our minds, our values, our 
thoughts, our choices, and our activities. And so when St. Paul says, for you were once darkness, he means that. Before the salvation of Christ has come to us. But now you are light in, in the Lord. This is where we get our light. Now we have so many things we take for example, for, for granted. Uh, when I was a young boy, I caddied at the golf course, and uh, sometimes the duffers would uh, hit the ball and slice it and become useless because there's a big gash in the ball. And so we take these and wonder what's inside this ball. We see the outside, the white ball that you can hit a mile, it seems. But when it's no longer capable of being used properly, you have a chance to take the cover off and it shrivels away into a little hard core that you throw away into the ash can. But what's underneath? Well, we found there were strands of rubber that were wound all around into a little ball. And then you wonder, what's underneath that? And you take all these strands of rubber and you find there's a little core of sometimes um, a milky substance uh, in a contained um, capsule or it might be even a little hard black rubber ball inside. And you say, well, I never could see this before. I wondered about it. Now I had a chance to take it apart and now I see it. And inside there was this construct that we cannot see. But we take it apart and we do begin to understand it. And so uh, inside the ball is always darkness until you open it up and then it becomes visible and we can see. So too, for example, an apple. We see an apple. What do you see? No, you don't see the apple. You see the skin of the apple. And when you open it up, then you see the inside. But until you open it up, there's darkness on the inside. And you think that you see the apple when you only see the cover of the apple. And so it is with the world. We live on the mantle of the world. What's inside this earth down deep? We say, well, there's a core uh, molten metal or lava or whatever, but we don't see it. It's in darkness. Or the animals or the fish in the depths of the ocean, down, down deep where light doesn't penetrate, they swim and they live. There are those that never see light, but they exist. And so there are these hidden levels that escape us in our own lives that uh, have, have depths yet to be probed, intelligence, knowledge, that uh, uh, we think we have, but we only have the thin skin of it all. And we need to penetrate it and bring light to the center so we can see what's underneath, as above, so below, but in reverse. So as above is the light, as below, we have the dark. As above, we have the opposite, the below. You can't have above without the below, nor the below without the above. So again, when we put our minds into gear, so to speak, and see the things that are right in front of our eyes, but take them apart, then we realize there's composite opposites. You can't have a right without a left. You can't have a left without a right. And so what about goodness and evil? What about virtue and sin? What are we talking about? We're talking about the reverses of things that could be good or evil but not the same. Similar, but opposite. So here we come now to mortal sin. What is mortal sin? You can talk about it, but can you grasp the disorder of 
mortal sin, deliberately chosen by a human being. Now let us preface these next remarks with the idea that each one sees only according to the light that he has. Saints see by the light of God. Sinners see by a reverse light, which is darkness. But they see what they see. And the selfishness that is the orientation which is opposite to the orientation outside of themselves towards God becomes the measure of all the other things involved in life. And so there's an ignorance. In fact, there is an irrationality about sin. There is an insanity about sin. And you automatically go into the insane spectrum or dimension when you're dealing with sin. So don't expect to talk about sin as virtue. Although to sinners, it seems it's virtue. And we cannot understand that goodness can come from evil, because it can't. Only evil can come from evil, as only good can come from good. So that's why our Lord says, by their fruits you will know them. You can't see the skin of the outside and say you understand. It's deep inside. And only by the fruits that result will you know the nature of the fruits inside or the causes from inside a thing or a person or a situation. So when we talk about mortal sin, what do we do? We can compare it with the ravages of nature. We know earthquakes. We know tornadoes. We know hurricanes. We know uh, freezing cold, sickness, death. Or in the human realm, war and crime, these disorders. We see the ravages of a volcano that erupts and casts its clouds and rolls down the sides of its mountains, the lava that we can be destroyed by if we're in its path. We see what nature in its uncontrolled state can produce. Hundreds and thousands of people killed in an earthquake, devastating earthquake. Can we translate that into the realms of morality, of sin? It's like an earthquake. It's like a plague that is the black death or AIDS. Eventually, death is the result. The wages of sin is death. The result of sin is death, devastation, destruction. And so, when we talk about mortal sin and say, mortal sin is a grievous offense against the law of God. What does that say? A grievous offense. How grievous? Can you measure it? Do you have a yardstick uh, to see how grievous grievous is? Can you measure an earthquake? Can you measure a hurricane? Uh, it has its various degrees of destruction. It's grievous. If we see the evils or the destruction of the wayward powers of nature. As composed, uh, compared to the orderliness of nature when flowers blossom and fruit results and we have the benefits of all the beauty and goodness that God has placed in nature. There's also power and a frightful devastation that can come from these same powers when they're out of order. So mortal sin is a grievous offense against the law of God. Now God put order into his creation and when it becomes disordered it becomes a destructive power. So a law that is disobeyed becomes a destructive power or force. As above, so below, but in reverse. And as virtue is the orderliness and the uh, conformity with the law of God in goodness, 
that produces benefits and blessings, so to the opposite is the destruction and uh, the terror of what mortal sin really is. Now we're going to take this apart and look inside. Any willful, there's the underlined word willful, any willful thought, desire, word, action, or omission in serious violation of God's law is a mortal sin. Now we violate God's laws in many ways unconsciously. We make mistakes. You know, uh, you drop a weight on your foot. You know, the weight is going to follow the law of gravity. That's normal. But if your foot's in the way, it's going to hurt because you're not uh, designed to drop heavy weights on your feet. And it can hurt you. If you put a heavy weight and drop it, and it's going to hurt you that much more. And you can even crush your foot that will have to be amputated and taken off. Um, what's a mortal sin? A serious violation willfully in thought, word, desire, act, or omission. Grievous. How heavy. How widespread. How terrible the result. It's a mortal sin. Examples of mortal sins are blasphemy. That's the top of the list, you might say, when you curse God. Can a human being curse God? Was well, not going to hurt God, that's for sure. God will be God in spite of us. But the injustice, the disorder of a man, of a mind, I should say, uh, in violent opposition to God, to curse God, wish him evil, to destroy God if you could. You can see how terrible this disorder is. Although words are words, they're good, but they can be blessings or curses and we could be put into uh, opposition to what they were designed to be and to promote. Uh, blasphemy um, is a mortal sin. When a person really blasphemes, now cursing, getting angry, swearing, these are not thoughtful usually, not deliberately designed and directed. They're slips of the tongue or aberrations of the mind, a disorder of a milder kind but still wrong. But when they're blasphemy, that the full dimension is deliberately directed against God or his law. Willful murder to design and carry out a crime of taking an innocent person's life deliberately, killing innocent children. How horrible. How unnatural. We protect children. We protect life. And yet abortions abound and they don't seem bad to those who perform or uh, cooperate, uh, it's a normal act. And we can see how disorderly it is, as, as above, so below. As healing can be for the benefit, so to the destruction of life is the exact opposite. And doctors become non-doctors, nurses become non-nurses. And so it is with judges who become non-judges, and politicians, and economists, and neighbors and even yourself turned inside out and upside down your darkness do you know what that means i don't look dark but there's a blackness that is opposite to god and his kingdom and his light his goodness his holiness adultery <coughs> sex god made it good but he put boundaries to it and we have to know and understand animals don't have these boundaries they go by instinct 
And human beings deliberately design adultery or uh, incest or pedophilia. All these things are out of order and they're mortal sins. And they don't seem that bad to those who perform them because I'm the one who's going to benefit from it and enjoy it and therefore it's okay for me. Each one is a judge in his own case and when you have no conscience that is guided by other principles then you make up your own rules and commandments or non-commandments. Arson. To burn down a building, a hotel or a apartment complex and kill people or destroy their property. For what reason? Just for anger or for insurance benefits or whatever. Uh, it's a mortal sin. It's a grievous offense against the law of God and his morality and justice and, and charity. It's a destructive force like a hurricane or a volcano or an earthquake. Total. Uh, robbery, etc. So last night uh, a hidden camera that was uh, taking surveillance and uh, the robbers came in and smashed the windows of the store, attached a chain to a stolen truck and the, um, the money machine and they yanked it out of the wall. All this devastation and they carried it off in the stolen truck and they took the machine apart and took the money out and uh, what did they leave behind? Robbery, destruction, uh, devastation, disorder. Poor man went to a store the next day, had to deal with it. He was unjustly treated, and he had to pay for the expense of restoring all this put back into order again, if, as time permitted. So we see, what is a mortal sin? We're talking about big time evil. Deliberate in a serious matter. So it's not little pity anythings that we call venial sins, but are still sins, but they're not devastating or grievous in the full sense that it destroys the very structure of a person's relationship with God. Christ has come to bring baptism and its grace of redemption to the supernatural order that yet has to be achieved through virtue and cooperation with God. You're in the ball field. Now you've got to play the game. And if you don't play it right according to the rules or you strike out, I mean, you lose. So we are in the ball field. Now we have to play so that we win as well and put our lives in order. Mortal sin occurs as soon as God is no longer our final end in our thoughts. Well, when we go through the day, we wonder, uh, is God the final end in my thought in everything I think or say or do? I doubt whether we're conscious of it. But our Lord said, who, he who is not against me is for me. In other words, if we have the intention to serve God, then even when we're doing ordinary things that keep his law, we are serving God. Whether we think of it or not, we're not out of order. Uh, when we're no longer serving God, even if we don't do anything evil, we already in our minds have turned against him. And that's where sin occurs at that moment. If you don't say a word, don't... Uh, uh, perform anything, don't even speak, but have this intention against God or in spite of God or towards oneself instead or anything else which is idolatry as a God and substitute to the true God, then we're out of order. When God is no longer our final end in our thoughts, words, or actions, then sin occurs at that moment. So only you know when that happens for you. 
You cannot judge someone else. You're only looking at the skin, the outside of the golf ball. What's inside, God knows, and only he can judge. And the person knows, of course. But you know that moment when you say, I define you, or I choose myself instead of you, or anything else instead of you, we're out of order. Each mortal sin we commit is a threefold insult to Almighty God. It insults him in, by rebellion or disobedience, by ingratitude. Who am I compared to God? And by contempt. I don't care. I will not serve. That's the diabolical revolution that he invites all his fallen angels to join and all the human beings he can gather into this be-your-own-God mentality. Circumstances of person, cause, time, place, means, by which object, objective or goal, and evil consequences, the resulting attending things, enhance or decrease the guilt of sin. Now this is the toughie. How grievous is it? We've got a lot of factors. So when I say, we talk about mortal sin, say that's a mortal sin. Not that simple. What about the attending circumstances, the condition of the mind of the person, ignorance or knowledge? The more you know, the more an obligation is for you to live according to that knowledge. The less you know, the less will be required, but the less you will produce, too. So uh, these circumstances will increase or decrease the, the guilt of the sin. And it's the guilt that is um, uh, actual sin. This is where we come in and we make the choices. Uh, how much that is, only God really knows, and we try to assess. And this is where you have one person differing from another person in how serious the matter is in their own eyes. So if a person is very lax, he doesn't see the grievousness of things, and his conscience will probably be very, um, uh, very um, liberal. So, oh, that's nothing. Oh, I didn't do anything wrong. Whereas a person of a very careful conscience will be aware of the right and wrong of things and be very much tuned as to where the line is or where they cannot go in their thinking or speaking or acting. And they're going to confess themselves accordingly. So not everybody comes to confession confesses themselves the same way. And we try to instruct you as we will go through the commandments later as to what is the right and wrong of things so that you will know and will assess yourselves in accordingly. And maybe lax people have to become more careful. And some who are overly careful, we call them scrupulous, will have to bring that down a little bit to a more liberal. You're over uh, exercising this sense of right and wrong until everything is wrong. And you don't know right from wrong anymore. It's a mental disorder too, excessive. So we want to have a, a sensitive conscience that is on target, correct, an evaluation that is just. You know, some people, children particularly, uh, they don't remember how many times they did something, so they exaggerate a million times. I swore a million times since last week. Impossible. Uh, but they want to be sure they cover the bases, so they cover all ball games, so to speak, at the same time. And that's not right either. No, be, be as close to the norm as you can come reasonably and confess accordingly. Just between you and God, the priest is only the intermediary, is the means through which God works. 
So you're not going to fool the priest or you're not going to enlighten the priest. You do the best you can and he will do the best he can doing God's work together and the grace of God will come accordingly. The more open you are to his graces, the more graces will come. The graces are there. We try to bring the maximum at this occasion to the soul or through the operation of that uh, particular sacrament. Why is this sin called mortal? This sin is called mortal or deadly because it deprives the sinner of sanctifying grace, the supernatural life of the soul. So you cannot appreciate mortal sin until you appreciate grace, the state of grace, the redemptive work of Christ. And the nature of this salvation operation of bringing us from darkness to light, from evil to goodness, from disorder to order. It's a total activity. And what crushes it like a can is mortal sin, destroys it out of order. Not only is it out of order, the whole machinery is gone. You can't even repair it. It's dead. And you have a car that's in a total accident, rolls down a hill and smashed to pieces. I mean, you've got mortal sin as an example through that car that's so devastated. Uh, you get a dent in the fender, you can get it banged out. If you have to replace the motor, you know, you can do that. But when a car is totally devastated, forget it, it's junk. And so that's what happens to a sinner in mortal sin. He is junk. He cannot get into the kingdom of heaven. Without sanctifying grace, the soul is displeasing to God. Unclean. And can never behold him or be with him in heaven. Never. You say, oh, well, God will forgive any sin. Not unless you're banged into shape again. Not unless you're restored and put in condition. That's what confession is meant to do, to take away uh, the situation whereby it can't run anymore and put it into a running condition. Doesn't mean perfect, but at least in the state of operation, in the state of grace. And we work on it until it's restored totally. Some of these old cars are beautiful things. Once they're restored, it takes a lot of money, it takes a lot of time. And that's the kind of effort we have to make in restoring our lives when we've sinned. Put it back into running condition and beautified and enhanced, maybe even made better than before. Otherwise, we can't go to heaven. We're in no condition. We've lost it. Without sanctifying grace, the soul is without God. And without God, the devil makes the soul his habitation. Nature abhors a vacuum. And if you don't have one, you have the other. So if you don't have goodness, you're going to have evil. If you don't have evil, then you're going to have goodness. And this is the status of, of as above, so below. It's not the same. It's the same, but in opposition, in, in, in reverse. So sanctifying grace has God. Mortal sin, no God. Know then and see how evil and bitter is your forsaking the Lord your God. From the book of Jeremiah. Sinner doesn't feel that. Oh, hey, I got the money, I got the pleasure, I got the power and the friends and so on. Hey, you're talking about the reverse. You ain't got nothing. The sinner loses charity towards God and his fellow men. And by the weakening of his will and the darkening of his intellect he is liable to fall into other mortal sins. When the light goes out, everything's dark. 
The devil cries to his subordinates, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him. Take him. He's defenseless. He's got no grace, no light. He's ours. For there is no one to rescue him. Without sanctifying grace, the soul loses the friendship of God. Imagine, we assume God is our friend. We assume it. Well, what about when he says, I don't know you. You're not my friend. You are living in an illusion. You have another friend who is your God, but is not me. And if an adult dies in that state, he suffers the torments of the damned. Forever? Forever. And we have to think about that because it's not that clear to us. We're looking at the skin of life, not the deep, deep inner core where the seeds of real life are going to be stored. And if we don't do that from time to time, it's through Lent or a retreat or time of... Uh, confession to search your conscience then you're only living the surface of it all you don't have any dimensions you're in a below situation very thin dimension not solid the word mortal comes from the Latin mors which means death St. John Chrysostom said sinners are dead while they live and the just live after they are dead. It's above, so below. Mortal sin, besides depriving the sinner of sanctifying grace, makes the soul an enemy of God, whether you think so or not, makes, takes away the merit of all his good actions. You've lost your bank account. Deprives him of the right to everlasting happiness in heaven. Many baptized souls are in hell. He had the right to have him, but he lost it. He's deprived of his birthright. He's lost, lost his birth certificate. Makes it deserving of everlasting punishment in hell. Our Lord talks about hell. He says, where the worm dies not, the worm that consumes and consumes, it doesn't die and stop, or the fire is never quenched, never put out. It goes on and on and on forever. Everlasting punishment makes us sober when we think about hell. So, you want to have an easy way out? Forget hell. Don't think about it, and you can live uh, in your own uh, mental dimensions, which is very small, very thin. God, man was made for God, and what an awful calamity it would be to become his enemy. It would be as if the food which was made to support and sustain man should all of a sudden turn to poison instead it's like King Midas everything turned to gold even the food was starved though mortal sin or through mortal sin the sinner becomes a stranger to divine love you know uh, essential or material things take over become his gods and the spiritual things are lost to sight or they're no longer important it's very crass very materialistic very um Servant, serving of uh, material things or, or idols. His heart turns cold because he has put out the flame of charity by grave sin. As above, so below. But in reverse, he has love for himself, but not love for God. It becomes a reverse situation. His reason, the gift of God, is obscured. It becomes dark. And he fails to perceive the things of God. Hey, I'm going to go to hell where all my friends are. Uh, funny. 
He fails to perceive the things of God. Thus a sinner, the more he sins, becomes more insensitive to evil. Evil is such a mean as, such, as to be hated needs only to be seen. But seen too often, familiar with her face, refers to endure and pity and embrace. That's brainwashing, but that's what happens in sin. Some, that's not something new. His will is finally so weakened that all conscience is lost and he falls into greater and greater sins more and more easily. That's perdition, not just uh, perversion, it's perdition. During all the time that the sinner remains in mortal sin, all his good works that he does do not help him to heaven any more than uh, any human good works can give us heaven. We can have happiness, we can have goodness, but if not sanctified, it cannot earn a supernatural reward. And all his merits that he did earn before are lost. It has no value. He's turned it to ashes. He earns no merits until he gives up his state of mortal sin. So people in um, invalid marriages, they're living in a state of mortal sin, in adultery. Uh, all the good they do to their neighbors, the kind love that they have to each other, all the things that they do for their children, empty. Until they get their marriage straightened out or they straighten their condition out with God and get back to the state of grace. Now it picks up where the bank account left off last. But in the meantime, there was no deposits. As the apostle says, if I give my body to be burned and have not charity, I'm nothing. One who falls into mortal sin may be compared to a merchant coming to his home port laden with all kinds of treasures collected from abroad upon which he has spent years of labor and incalculable wealth or effort. All, just as he enters the harbor, his, sin is, his ship is torpedoed and he saves nothing for all his troubles. Comes into port and sinks. It's all empty, not, uh, gone for nothing. In a similar way, one who dies in mortal sin gains nothing, no matter what he's done, however numerous the good works he may in life have performed. Uh, these are realities. These are truths. We didn't make this up. God told us. The sinner be converted from his sin. I will no longer remember his sin that he does his good. But if a good man sins, all the good he's done, I will forget. So be careful about mortal sin. However numerous the merits previously earned by the sinner, however many his good works, if he dies with only one mortal sin on his soul, he goes to hell forever. Is that just of God? One mortal sin? Do you know what mortal sin is? Uh, if we understood what mortal sin is, then we'll see the justice of God. It totally destroys your relationship with God. Is not, uh, it is not something, uh, is it not something to be feared? Yes. But if you're blind, if you're upside down, inside out, you don't fear it. You joke about it, you laugh at it, you forget it. But the reality won't go away. The Taj Mahal or the Vatican or the person is what it is, not what you think it is. Not the surface, but the interior reality, the three dimensions. And God tells us what the three dimensions are. We look at it and see only two dimensions or something less. We're deceiving ourselves because we're in this reverse dark world. And we see with our eyes, but our mind doesn't comprehend. We're in reverse. We're in blindness. It is because mortal sin presupposes a hatred of God. Let us be reasonable men and consider the utter folly of selling our birthright. We don't feel like we're enemies of God, but we are. And that's the important thing, because God is the judge, not we. 
God in heaven for the mess of pottage that is sin and its effort. Say you had all the money in the world, had all the pleasure you could enjoy for a hundred years, and then go to hell. What was it all about? Or if you suffered for a hundred years and were despised, but not to heaven. What was it all about? Nothing succeeds like success. So if you have a bad row to hoe, hoe it and don't complain. As long as at the end of the row, you've got to heaven. Others have an easier way. If they get to heaven, thank God that they didn't have to work as hard, but they'll get a little bit less too if they didn't waste it. Then he says, he will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, accursed ones, into everlasting fire. Hey, we didn't make this up. It's here. We better read it and understand it. Okay, now finally, three things. You can study all the sins in the book. But unless you have these three conditions, you don't commit a mortal sin. Three things are necessary to make a mortal sin, whether it's a thought, word, action, or omission. Three things. First, the thought, desire, word, action, or omission must be seriously wrong or considered seriously wrong. You know, you could be wrong in your estimation, overestimate. It's just as bad as you say or think that you willingly do that makes it that sinful. The matter must be grave, a slight act of vanity, or impatience is not a serious matter. It's a matter of disorder, but it's not serious. So it can't be a mortal sin. You steal a penny or a dime. Is that a mortal sin? Children think it is, maybe, and it would be wrong for them, but it's not really in itself a serious matter. To steal a million dollars or a thousand dollars or save for a poor man, fifty dollars. That would be serious. Now, how do you draw a line there? Theologians try to do it for us, and they come to conclusions. There may not be a total agreement among theologians as to what's right and wrong or mortal or venial, but we come close to the dividing line, and we try to inform our consciences accordingly. The matter must be grave. A slight act is not. Okay, second, second. The sinner must be mindful of the serious wrong. He's got to know it. So you have the objective standard is what's right and wrong. Then you have the subjective standard of my knowing that right and wrongness that God has told me. He must have full knowledge and reflection or attention and know that what he does is grievous. <coughs> we say person, circumstances, uh, all these things before take away the grievousness to some degree. So each one has to know how attentive he was to what he was doing or saying. If it slips out, and he would not have said it had been on his guard, and sometimes a, 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 a situation of surprise arises, and the person reacts immediately, he's not in control. If afterwards he said, I would have said it anyhow, now he is in control. That's when it becomes wrong. Uh, if he's not on his guard and hasn't try to re make more remote the reactions, you know, he curses and he curses and he cur and doesn't try to stop cursing, then he's guilty of neglect, of trying to rid himself of this habit. So again, you see, mortal sin is not that easy to assess, but it can be assessed once you keep these basic rules in mind. Sinner must be mindful of the seriousness of the grievousness of his action or omission. A man who steals a precious diamond ring in the belief <coughs> that it is glass, fake, has not full knowledge. He's mistaken. 
A man who throws a lighted match thoughtlessly aside may throw it into a gasoline tank and cause an explosion, but he has not full attention. May uh, cause a person to die. Accidental. The sinner must fully consent to it. He must do it of his own, of his own free will, saying deliberately, I will do this. That's the moment that he commits sin. Even if he doesn't move a finger, once he's made a decision, he must fully consent. Now, what takes away from his fullness of consent? Fear. If you don't do this, I'll kill you. Or, um, other factors that take away from his full uh, control of self. Anger, overwhelming anger uh, that <coughs> may overwhelm him, it diminishes the seriousness of this. But if he coldly, soberly, calculatingly chooses, then he has the three elements that finally make a serious matter that he knows and deliberately consents to a sin. Now what about uh, temptations? sins of thought. I thought about it. Did I commit a sin? No. It's a temptation. And there's never sin in temptation as such. Now, if you deliberately linger in this thought, now you're beginning to be guilty of um, what we call the adictatio morosa. You're, you're, you're dwelling on it when you should terminate it. Get rid of it because it's going to lead you more into the inclination of committing the sin. Uh, we must have full deliberation. And anything that uh, takes it down, now we tell a person who's going to confession, you must tell what the sins were, the number of times you committed those sins, and the circumstances that take away or add to the seriousness of it. Okay, now you've got to go through this and say, well, did I really realize it? Did I do it out of uh, reaction? I, I wasn't in control. Was I half asleep? Was I doubtful? Or what were these things? Or did I really consent? Sometimes they can't even tell for sure whether they consented or not. Then you confess to that degree. Father, I'm not sure whether I consented. Priest has to believe the penitent, whether he speaks for himself or against himself. He can't presume that the person has done anything wrong because uh, the actions were such that would appear to somebody else as wrong, but inside he's got to know and confess himself according to his conscience the best he knows how. So don't exaggerate and don't cut it down. Just give it straight away. I think that maybe I did consent, all right? Then we'll leave it at that. Sometimes the priest has to say, I judge you as God judges you. I don't know what that judgment will be, but... I'll try to be as honest and fair to you as you must be try to be honest and fair in this confession to God because the sins you confess are the ones that are forgiven. And don't omit any, and don't exaggerate any, and don't cut any down, but be as honest and fair about it. So it puts you into the driver's seat, so to speak, and it gives you the responsibility, therefore, of um, determining mortal sin or venial sin or no sin at all in your confession. Is mortal sin a great evil? Oh, I'm sorry. Therefore, infants and idiots cannot commit mortal sin. They don't have the human activities capable of deliberate thought and action. 
And as a child grows up, now he enters a twilight zone of uh, reasonable responsibility. When he reaches the age of reason is when he then assumes the responsibility of virtue or sin. Until then, children spill things or they say things or do things. They may be playing with matches and burn down a whole building. They're not responsible because they're little infants. They're not developed. <coughs> so, is mortal sin a great evil? Mortal sin is a great evil, the greatest evil in the world. The greatest evil. Uh, not a hurricane, not a de uh, an earthquake, uh, not uh, anything that is uh, accidental. Bad as the results may be war, to be victimized by war or crime. It's not a sin. But those who deliberately do commit sin commit the greatest evil. And that's hard to assess. That's why we have to sort of build this picture of the sliding scale of what's above, so below. And to get in the right dimension and assess it according to the uh, reality of these dimensions of good and evil. But mortal sin is the greatest evil in the world, a greater evil than disease or poverty because it separates us from God. And only you can do that. That's why you have no enemies except yourself. No one else can take you away from God. Not even the devil. Only you can do that. So you see how personally responsible you are in this determination of your salvation. You will go to hell because you have put yourself there. No one else. They may have helped you along, but you have the final say. It is a rebellion against and contempt of God, the blackest ingratitude towards him. Our Heavenly Father gives us everything we have, and in return we offend him. Now, it's true, we're, we're children in a way. We don't realize these things. And so there's a diminution of the seriousness of it, but it's still a reality. And if it's a line that you cannot cross, then you will not cross that line because you're on the wrong side of it. We desecrate his <coughs> temple. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? You're more holy than this altar, more holy than the chalice. You contain God by grace. And if you only realize that, we try to bring this out in spiritual books, advanced spiritual books. So, if you are that holy, then know you have a dignity, a beauty, a wholesomeness, a goodness that God has bestowed upon you to share with him. And you have a duty to respond to that, to live in this dimension of reality of children of God. You were once darkness, but now you are light. And what is the result? For the fruit of the light is in all goodness and justice and truth. This is light. By a mortal sin, a vile and insignificant creature offends and insults the infinite creator. You're that powerful. You can make an infinite insult, an infinite sin. You can do that. You can't make infinite good. Only God can do that of you if you serve him, if you love him. It is like crucifying Christ again. You nail him to the cross. When we have these stations of the cross, it is not the weight of the cross, but my sins that has made me suffer so much pain. We say it, but do we realize it? A study like this helps us. 
Since they crucify him again for themselves, the Son of God, and make him a mockery, St. Paul says in his letter to the Hebrews. We can never fully realize the malice of mortal sin. We can get a small idea of it by remembering that God sent his own beloved Son to suffer untold agonies to save us from its consequences. Think about Good Friday. Think about being nailed to the cross. Think about hanging by these nails for three hours after having spent a sleepless night being condemned unjustly, being scourged and mocked and spit upon, carrying the cross crowned with thorns. Think of it. Then realize this is mortal sin. He took it upon himself to pay our debt this way that we should have paid. So don't complain about inconveniences or injustices or suffering. You owe a debt. Maybe you can help pay it. Finally, mortal sin must be a most appalling thing indeed to make a just and merciful God create hell for the everlasting punishment of the rebellious angels and of sinners who die with even only one mortal sin. Don't say it's just a sin, one sin, one mortal sin. God will forgive. God makes the rules. He tells us what they are. You better live accordingly. So get an assessment of what mortal sin is. It's, we've been talking long this morning. But realize this is the greatest evil. This is the one thing that can destroy everything that God has done that he has uh, produced like through his church and the sacraments and mass, all of it wiped away by one mortal sin. Even considering only its temporal penalties, mortal sin is a great folly. Upon it follows mortal disquiet, this disturbance of the world, political, economic, uh, moral. Why? Not because of the goodness of God, but because of the mm, evil of sinners. The sinner loses the serenity and cheerfulness of the just soul. The wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot be calmed. And they have a sort of a moral glee in this perverseness and this sniggeriness that attends their thinking and speaking and acting. Let us be sober-minded. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk then as children of light, for the fruit of the light is in all goodness and justice and truth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.